Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, well, we'll talk about the CDC's eviction moratorium, which expires in just a few days. What this means for thousands, maybe millions of Georgia renters at risk for eviction. And also, Georgia State University has a new College of Law dean, Dean LaVonda Reed, the school's seventh dean in the college's history, and the first black American to lead the College of Law joins me for a conversation. But before all of that, we get to this, an admission of guilt today from Robert Long, who pleaded guilty to four of those eight murders at three area spas that occurred back in March. Long, accused of murdering a total of eight people, including six Asian American women, pleaded guilty to charges of murder, aggravated assault, and other charges. In a Cherokee County courtroom earlier today, Long was sentenced to four life sentences with an additional 35 years without parole. Here's Cherokee County Chief Ellen McAlee talking to Long. I know that after after the sentence is signed and um, the cameras are turned off, that um, the families will still be struggling and grieving. Long still faces charges here in Fulton County for the other four murders, and District Attorney Fonnie Willis has said her office will seek the death penalty. In other news, as you just heard on NPR, another change regarding masking guidelines is coming from the Atlanta-based CDC. It is expected the CDC will recommend now fully vaccinated people again start wearing masks indoors in those areas with high COVID-19 transmission rates. However, it's not clear how folks will be able to determine that. A press briefing takes place today at 3 p.m. Finally, a major announcement from Walmart. Today, the big box giant commits to paying 100 percent of college tuition and books for its associates. Now, this is through Walmart's Live Better You education program. In a statement from Walmart, quote, this means approximately 1.5 million part-time and full-time Walmart and Sam's Club's associates in the U.S. can earn college degrees or learn trade skills without the burden of education debt, close quote. The statement goes on to say the largest U.S. private employer, Walmart, is committed to investing nearly $1 billion over the next five years in career-driven training and development. And we are working to get a Walmart spokesperson on this week to talk more about this. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf 
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. On August 1st, the CDC's extended moratorium on evictions will expire. As the nation's health protection agency, the CDC had initially declared the COVID-19 pandemic was a, quote, historic threat to the nation's public health. But last week, a U.S. appeals court ruled the CDC lacked authority for issuing the national moratorium last year. And that ruling was from the 6th U.S. Court of Appeals. And it affected Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, and Michigan, meaning the courts in those states were no longer held by the moratorium. Still, in just a few days, though, the remaining states will also no longer be bound by the moratorium. It is expected that millions of households will be effective affected courts in cities like Atlanta. Counties such as Fulton, DeKalb, Clayton already have a backlog in eviction procedures. And this, of course, will undoubtedly just add to that. Alora Raymond is an assistant professor of city and regional planning at Georgia Tech. And she has extensive research and work in housing-related areas such as housing justice, race, segregation, displacement, and work on eviction and migration following disasters. She's been on this program going back to when Closer Look first started addressing housing issues way back in 2017. Professor, thanks for taking the time. Good to have you back. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. I think when we first spoke to you, you were a research assistant uh, working on that. I think it was a Federal Reserve report. On That's right. Yeah. Yes, we were looking at evictions uh, among properties owned by corporate landlords uh, and, several years ago. And you told me back then, along with so many other people, and it's a, it's also a, it's something I remember from Ryan Gravel that said the housing in general was heading to a, a tsunami that was back then. When you look back at where we are in 2021, because obviously no one knew a pandemic was going to occur, this this moratorium with the eviction process, um, through your lens, what is this nation facing when this moratorium expires in just a few days? Well, it's really troubling. Um, around uh, Estimates suggest that around 22% of all Georgia renters are behind on rent. Uh, many of these tenants have through no fault of their own, lost their job, lost income, are, are several months behind on rent and have no way to uh, pay that money. And unfortunately, uh, Georgia has spent less than 2% of the emergency rental assistance money that is available to help these tenants uh, with with the rent that they owe. And it, it doesn't look good. We don't have enough time uh, and we really need that moratorium to be extended. And we also need uh, our... Um, rental assistance uh, programs to be much more effective than they are right now. The money is there. It's just not going out the door. You mentioned less than 2%. How are you all coming by that that number? Uh, the Treasury has put out figures about the uh, amount of emergency rental assistance that was given to states and then dispersed to counties and cities. Uh, and they also provide a figure of, of how much money has been set, spent. And so Georgia got $553.3 million mm-hmm. in round one, but we've spent less than 2% of it. And at the local level, those numbers are very low as well. We had state officials on this program when mm-hmm. that money, when it was announced that Georgia would get that amount of money. Have you all been able to identify 
why only 2% of it has been spent, knowing that Georgia was one of the states, and particularly here in the in the Atlanta area, knowing the backlog and knowing how, knowing how many people needed this assistance. What have you all been able to uncover? Well, when we look at other states are doing much better. Virginia has paid out 43% of their ERA funds. Texas um, has also spent around 33, 34% of their ERA funds. And we talk with particular um, um, people in particular local jurisdictions like DeKalb County or City of Atlanta. What we find is that although this program was structured to be very flexible, um, uh, tenants don't need to prove that they lost their job. They just need to uh, certify and, and basically say that, yes, I lost my job due to COVID. Um, the, you know, the paperwork requirements are on purpose very low to allow the money to go out quickly. Um, and and also another thing that's really great about this program at the federal level is that if for some reason a landlord is unwilling to accept this money because they don't want the strings attached because they just want to evict this tenant anyways, mm-hmm. and we do see that, what um, what Treasury says you should do and what in their second round of funding they're saying you're required to do is you're supposed to offer that money to the tenant. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, places like DeKalb County, City of Atlanta are not doing that. Um, so the money is just not going out the door because they are imposing additional paperwork requirements and because when landlords, for whatever reason, do not want to accept this deal, they don't then give the money to the tenant, even though that's what Treasury encourages and going forward will require Um, these jurisdictions to do with the money. And Professor, before we move on with our conversation, because WABE housing reporter Stephanie Stokes, who's been following all of this, she just had a report on how most rental assistance programs in Metro Atlanta won't pay tenants directly, ignoring federal guidance. I want to play Stephanie's entire feature. It's about four minutes long. Take a listen. Miranda Gordon has barely left her house in the last year. I'm I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm here 24-7. So are her four children. They've all been together in this suburban home in South DeKalb County for the entire pandemic. Gordon says that turned out to be a blessing. It brought us closer. We're here all the time with each other. When I do something, they're with me. Every time you see me, you see them. They were in the middle of their own crisis at the start of 2020. Gordon had to move her children out of an abusive situation. They just settled in this house when the other worldwide crisis began. I think It happened for a reason in my family. Scary, of course, but I feel like we had to go through that to get where we're at today. She says they're ready for a new chapter now. After they overcome one more obstacle. Gordon's landlord filed an eviction earlier this year. With the pandemic, her job in human resources became remote, but part-time. She paid some of her rent with the help of churches, and she says her landlord was understanding. I don't know what happened, but I get it. You know, he had to do his job. She doesn't get what came next, though. After the eviction notice, she qualified for federal rental assistance through DeKalb County. The program and Gordon together offered to pay her landlord $10,000 in back rent. And he said no. And I was just confused that he was getting the past due plus two additional months of rent. And he declined it. So I don't know. There are more cases like hers. Lindsay Siegel is director of housing advocacy at Atlanta Legal Aid, which is helping DeKalb County with rental assistance. She says 15 percent of landlords have rejected their offers so far. The difficulty is you can't force the landlord to take the money. And the other difficulty is DeKalb County is one of several local governments that won't consider the next option to give money to the tenant, even though the federal government has asked them to. Diane Yantel is president of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. It's very clear in the guidance from the White House 
that they expect program administrators to use direct-to-tenant assistance when landlords refuse to participate. She says when a landlord refuses to participate, it already slows down the process. And if a program won't pay the tenant, the outcome just becomes worse. It then has the result of leaving that tenant without any assistance at all. Yentel has heard some programs worry tenants may misuse funds. But she notes that worry doesn't come up in relief efforts for people with higher incomes. There's less reluctance to give cash directly to homeowners, knowing that they will pay their bills, than there is to do the same with low-income renters. If programs want some assurance, she says they can have tenants sign a form promising to spend the money right. DeKalb County wouldn't comment for this story, and neither would Gordon's landlord. According to Legal Aid, the disagreement came down to when she would move out. She agreed to, within 60 days. The landlord insisted on 30. The National Apartment Association says other landlords, which they call housing providers, might reject federal money because local programs add requirements, like to not evict tenants. To Jody Applewhite with the association, that approach is misguided. The grantees should focus on making sure that the money reaches to the housing providers who have gone months without any um, payments. DeKalb's local program also has a condition on its federal funds. It only pays 60 percent of past due rent. Gordon made up the rest with her own money. Now, the county can only offer her a consolation prize, according to Siegel with Legal Aid. Once she is able to find a new place to rent, she can submit that new lease to the court and have two months covered. That amount will be a lot less than the rent she owes at her current home. And it also means Gordon has to find new housing, which is difficult with the eviction case against her. She's still trying. But I feel it's all going to come into play sooner or later. I just got to be patient. She's working full time now. Eventually, she would like to buy a house for her and her children. With the debt she owes to her landlord, she realizes that new chapter may be farther off. Stephanie Stokes, WABE News. WABE Stephanie Stokes there, and I wanted to play that entire feature because I think Professor, I'm back now with Professor Laura Raymond, Assistant Professor of City and Regional Planning at Georgia Tech. So much in Stephanie's piece there that really highlights a lot of issues, a lot of optics here in civiction crisis. What stood out to you that, first of all, in terms of is at the core of what we're all going to be facing here? I, I think that um, that set of interviews absolutely gets to the to the core of what we're facing. And one issue that was raised that I think is really important is that, uh, again, you know, 22 percent of Georgia tenants are behind on rent, according to estimates, uh, many of them through no fault of their own because the economy contracted during this crisis. It is really through no fault of their own that they were unable to make rent. Um, and it is incredibly hard to find new housing if you have both an eviction and rent debt uh, that you're trying to pay back. It's really hard to get a new landlord to accept you. And so where are people going to go? Uh, we have thousands of people uh, within the city of Atlanta since the beginning of the pandemic. Over 90,000 evictions have been filed, according to our, our uh, eviction tracker that we keep. Um, where are people going to go uh, if they have both an eviction and this rent debt? And so the issue of sealing magistrate records, I think, is pretty important. That's one uh, that, that some groups are trying to put forth before the legislature and talk about with different county courts, um, because this is a, a special situation. In mm -hmm. addition to the normal eviction crisis we have, um, we also have a lot of people who uh, are entering into the rental market going forward with a bad history uh, because of this pandemic. And, Professor, we know 
every state is different. Georgia has long, for a long time, was considered a very landlord-friendly state. That's just what people would call it. Uh, there have been some few, uh, through the state legislature, there have been some changes. Through your lens, with the rollout of the with the program from the federal government, should there have been maybe a different type of or a, a blanket sort of process that all states had to follow in terms of making sure landlords would get their money and then also allowing the tenant to be able to stay for a while, if they, even if the landlord wanted them out? Would that have, you think, alleviated some of this backlog that we already have and the ensuing problems that apparently this nation is going to incur as well? I, I think it's hard to, um, you, you know, there's some landlords, and we saw this during the foreclosure crisis, they just don't have any interest in accepting this money. They can rent, you know, especially in a gentrifying city like Atlanta where rents are rising, they can rent to a new tenant tomorrow with a perfect credit history for higher rent. And that's a better deal for them. Um, and so it's it, it, even though it's really bad for us as a society, it's really bad for our economy as a whole to allow tens of thousands of people to not receive any aid during this crisis. For the individual landlord, that's their best bet. And without any kind of tenant, strong tenant protections, there's nothing to bring some landlords to the bargaining table. Um, so I think having stronger tenant law would be would help us through this crisis. And in general, I think that would be an important step for Georgia. But in Stephanie's piece, as we heard, the tenant, and I know there could be a lot, there's a back backstory here, but from what we know of, the tenant offered the landlord $10,000, the landlord declined, mm-hmm. which, fine. But also, the tenant mentioned one day I want to buy a house. And you and I both know then your credit comes into play here because even if you are evicted, you leave without going to court, doesn't that go on your credit report? Yeah, I think that um, what you're pointing to here is that because we're not providing recovery money for people, we're going to be living with the consequences of this housing crisis for years. And this is what happened in Georgia after the subprime and Mm -hmm. foreclosure crisis, that because we didn't have effective emergency responses, uh, we went through it for Mm -hmm. years longer than people in other states. And it damaged our economy for years after, you know, cities, other cities around the country had totally forgotten about the foreclosure crisis. We were still in the midst of it. So that, that there is that similarity. Counties Fulton, DeKalb and Clayton were some of the hardest hit. And I remember covering that, especially in DeKalb County, the foreclosures. And and there were some subdivisions here in Fulton County where the entire subdivision was foreclosed and there was nobody living in and the banks did not take care of those properties. You suspect we're going to see some of these same outcomes, not just with folks, but just with some properties. Now, again, things have changed because folks around here are snapping up properties left and right. But you feel that this is going to be even much worse than what we saw after the 2008, the Great Recession? Well, one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of our unsubsidized affordable housing, um, our lower rent, but, you know, still market rate places are struggling because they have a lot of tenants who have not been able to pay and they're having trouble staying afloat. Mm -hmm. And in my research, when Properties like this are purchased at low rates by large corporate landlords. Often that accelerates a trend of displacement and gentrification. Uh, The research that I've done on private equity owned uh, single family rentals and multifamily apartment complexes uh, ties those landlords to um, practices that aren't really great Mm -hmm. as a 
as a set of public policies for, for those of us here in Atlanta. So rising rents, increased number of evictions, and, and neighborhood change and displacement. So I, I do worry that we'll see a lot of these um, unsubsidized, of affordable apartments within the city of Atlanta change hands because of this pandemic. And I wonder what the new landlords will do. Do you think that it is possible, and I don't know how all this could be worked out as it goes back to then how this will impact people in the future, could there be some type of, of leniency given then to folks who might have gone through the eviction process during this pandemic, and if they have some type of documentation that says, hey, I at least did make an offer to my landlord, of course, this is totally up to that next landlord, or because, look, let's be clear, trying to qualify to maybe buy a home with an eviction on your, on your credit report is not going to be helpful at all. I, I absolutely support sealing magistrate records for tenants who have had um, evictions filed against them for non-payment of rent. And I know that that's one of the policy options that's on the table. Um, I Is that I per county? Is that per county? That that could be done at the state level, but it also, you know, the courts are run on the county level. So yeah, mm-hmm. the, the county courts um, would have to consider that if there was an action at the state level. Are you optimistic that the state legislature could enact something soon to help? I think there's a really strong case that this is important for our economy, for the Georgia economy, and I think that our legislature is business savvy, and they understand that we do not need another housing crisis. Uh, So I'm always optimistic. Well, meanwhile, Professor, in all the your research and studies that you've been a part of, and I know asking about solutions, you know, <laughs> you know we don't have a problem. We, we, you know, we would take a lot more time, but immediate solutions. What are you hoping here? I think our best bet is to increase the pace of uh, tenant rental assistance. That that is something that folks in city of Atlanta, DeKalb County, uh, you know, around Atlanta can do right away. Um, They can change the way they're administering this program, uh, follow the recommendations of treasury and get money out the door sooner. And that's going to help a lot of people. But again, it also means the landlord at the core of all this too, is the landlord, right? I mean, the the woman in Stephanie's story, she offered the landlord $10,000. Well, then what what DeKalb County can do is just give that $6,000 to the tenant Mm -hmm. and the tenant can pay off her rent debt. She has a $4,000 and she can move somewhere else and at least she will have a clean credit history. So right now what DeKalb is doing is saying, tenant, you get nothing. And that tenant is going to have trouble renting elsewhere. So what they need to do is just give the money to the tenant. That is the solution, the short-term solution. Thinking more long-term about how to work with our landlords and and housing providers um, in a way that benefits all of Atlanta, that's a longer-term question, I think. And I have an email from a listener who says, you know, what are you all not thinking about the landlords? What about the landlords? Ask your guest that. I mean, that's all they wrote. So, And and to be fair, we have reached out to so many associations with uh, apartment managing companies and landlords and and no one has agreed to come on the program so we are not saying that the landlords aren't they have not been also a burden as well but also trying to figure out what's the best solution for for everyone involved what are other states doing professor that you think georgia could could borrow from could use a template there's been a lot of excitement about the eviction diversion program that's going on in uh, Philadelphia right now, and I think that that is a model that we could look into. Um, I think looking at what Virginia and Texas are doing in terms of dispersing their 
uh, emergency rental assistance. And this again would help landlords. This is money going to landlords prim mm -hmm. primarily, um, but, but copying the templates that they've used there. Um, and I think sealing magistrate records for tenants who've had evictions filed against them for non-payment of rent, I think that that would be a big step because we don't want tens of thousands of people who were affected by this crisis through no fault of their own uh, trying to make a life with damaged uh, rental histories. That's going to be, you know, a drag on, on their potential. Meanwhile, uh, I know there's some advocacy groups that have been working since last year to help folks. What are people's resources here? What work, worth can they turn? It's um, it's frustrating. I um, recommend the United Way, you know, two one one number. I think that's a great clearinghouse for people to call and get a sense for what resources are available um, locally to them. That's that's my first recommendation when when people ask me that question. And given what just happened last week uh, with the ruling from the sixth U.S. Court of Appeals, even if the CDC did at the last moment say we were going to extend this moratorium, you will see a lot of challenges. And that was in the one in, in the sixth U.S. Court of Appeals was brought by a landlord. So even if that did happen, you're going to have a lot of challenges. I agree. I th and I'm not a lawyer. And I understand you're talking with a lawyer later on, so I don't want to overstep. But um <laughs> The new dean you know, at Georgia the, State. <laughs> exactly. We'll ask her. <laughs> so may, maybe you want to ask her that question. But, you know, the American Journal of Epidemiology found that the number of deaths attributed to COVID-19 was five times higher in the months after an eviction moratorium expired. Mm -hmm. And the number of COVID-19 cases doubled. And we have a very low vaccination rate here in Georgia. And we have rising cases due to this Delta variant. So there's a really strong public health reason for this evictions moratorium. It's not frivolous. There's a really good mm -hmm. life and death reason for this to be in place right now. And that is why uh, the CDC initially declared the pandemic was a, it was a it was a threat, you know, to housing, to people's livelihood. So mm -hmm. absolutely. Laura Raymond is an assistant professor of city and regional planning at Georgia Tech with extensive research and work in housing related areas such as housing justice, segregation, displacement and work on eviction and migration following disasters. Professor, thank you so much for taking the time. As always, I really appreciate it. We'll have to have you all back. Um, see where we go from here. All right. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the program. listening to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR, and you're listening to Closer Look. If you didn't know, I'm Rose Scott. Earlier this year, in January, 157 law deans from around the nation signed onto a joint statement. It was about the 2020 election and the events that took place at the Capitol on January 6th. In part, the statement read, quote, the violent attack on the Capitol was an assault on our democracy and the rule of law. The effort to disrupt the certification of a free and fair election was a betrayal of the core values that undergrid our Constitution. Lives are lost. The seat of our democracy was desecrated and our country was shamed. Close quote. Now, this was rare and historic that law deans came together because the statement also called out those lawyers who intentionally challenged the validity of the 2020 presidential outcome. I'm going to discuss this and more 
with LaVonda Reed. She's Georgia State University's new College of Law Dean. She was appointed as the seventh dean effective this past July 1st. Dean Reed, welcome to Closer Look. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Thank you for having me, Rose. Can you hear me? I hear you. I hear you. You know what? So much to get to regarding your new appointment, but I also want to begin because right now at the time of this conversation, there's a House commission hearing on the January 6th Capitol riots. It's underway. Obviously a horrific moment in history. When you watch what was taking place that day in January, what was going through your mind? Rose, thank you, first of all, for having me on your show today. I am excited to be the dean at Georgia State University College of Law. This moment in history, this moment in time, I'm joining a wonderful community of scholars, students, and staff who are doing wonderful things here in the city of Atlanta, nationally, and in fact, internationally. So again, thank you so much for having me on the show this afternoon. Uh, lots of things went through my mind when I saw that um, on January 6th. As you all know, I just arrived here from upstate central New York, mm-hmm. and um, so was watching it from a different uh, different locale, but probably had a lot of the same reactions that many other people around the country had. Um, what many people may not know about me is um, my family has a long history of military service. Mm-hmm. My father is um, now deceased, but he was a career Marine Corps officer, uh, served this country in three conflicts. He was a two-time Vietnam War veteran, as well as a veteran of the Persian Gulf War. And so when I think about what it means to be an American and what it means to be a patriot in this country, um, it, it, it did trouble me very deeply to hear and to see um, challenges to our uh, peaceful trans- transfer of power mm-hmm. and um, what it actually means to live in a free society, a democratic society, an American society, one that did not on that day look anything like mm-hmm. what I was raised to believe to be America. Referred to as an assault on the seat of democracy, we asked listeners about the state of the nation's democracy. A lot of folks at that time said, you know, that some were hopeful. Others said, you know, it's crumbling right in front of us. I'll ask you, do you have concerns about the state of the nation's democracy even still? Well, democracies are fragile. And so, um, you know, they need to be protected. Um, each generation, um, this is this American experience is very much a, um, a maybe you might even say a novel idea. Mm-hmm. And um, it is fragile based on um, norms about how we treat one another, how we engage with the process, how we respect process, how we engage civilly, how we disagree um, civilly and um, engage, generally speaking, with with a sense of keeping the 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 ideals of the principle, the dream of, mm-hmm. of what it means to be America alive. When we talk about the rule of law, and I asked a lot, I had a lot of scholars on this program, I had a lot of jurists on this program, and I love talking to you all, attorneys, judges, everyone. But there was this consensus that the the law community, particularly for those that continued to carry former President Trump's, uh, this narrative of that the election was stolen, uh, and that they intentionally challenged the validity of the 2020 presidential outcome. These are folks in your space. What did you make of that? All right. Well, part of what it means to be American also is um, freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And um, 
at the law school, what we teach our students is to be respectful of those constitutional values, ideals, norms. Um, but violence is is not something that is within that realm. And so, you know, I, I it's it's deeply troubling, very deeply troubling. However, um, here at the law school, what we try to do is to prepare our students for the practice of law. We prepare our students to be thought leaders, both locally, nationally, mm -hmm. globally. We prepare them to think critically. We prepare them to be advocates in a civil American process, um, a structure that is um, generations old, um, over 200 years old, as we all know. Um, and it is grounded in, yes, protection of freedoms, but also um, notions of doing so in a peaceful way um, that is not disruptive to the, um, the ongoing processes, the running of mm -hmm. our country. Doctors take an oath. Judges are sworn in. Attorneys, you all, there's a certain set of guidelines and, and ideologies that we expect of, of you all. So if you see and hear an attorney who is blatantly and knowingly saying something that is not true, and based on everything that you just said, can you understand someone losing faith in the entire system because they are not upholding to everything you just talked about and what you all teach law students. And you were once a student. I was, in fact, once a student. And um, even though I am now the dean at Georgia State University College of Law, I'm also still a member of the faculty. And um, when we become, uh, when we take kind of dive into being an academic, we, we commit to a life of lifelong learning. So I most definitely um, understand that. Um, but I would say that it, as, as in any, any arena of American life, mm -hmm. Um, that the acts of, of a small group of people um, do not necessarily reflect the entire profession. Mm -hmm. um, it, we can say that about a whole host of things that happen in American life. Um, there are attorneys who um, may be doing things that are not agreeable to the majority of, of others in the profession, uh, but also we know that's ground. What is grounded in the um, in the legal profession too, and in American society, is the um, opportunity for representation. Mm -hmm. So um, even people who have engaged in things that are um, maybe against our social norms um, are entitled to representation. However, as lawyers, um, we do uphold standards and adhere to standards of professionalism. And in fact, um, when we start our academic year, we bring in all of our students, our first year students, and they all take an oath of professionalism. Mm. And this year, I will say we are excited about uh, the prospect of that, um, bringing our students back into the building after having been away for so long. And one of our very own alumna is going to be administering the oath of professionalism to our students this year. And we couldn't be more thrilled about that. So yes, we take that, that oath very seriously. Um, we take our responsibility as lawyers, as educators very seriously in this regard, but also um, recognize that 
in a, a society as diverse and as large as American society, we're going to have people who are doing things that we don't necessarily agree with. However, um, that's kind of part and parcel, if you will, of being um, uh, a messy democracy. Let's go back to University of Southern California. You know where I'm going with this, right? Okay. <laughs> Let's go back to that day and to to the when you, you know, you knew it was you knew it was you knew you had you knew you had did it as Mama would say you did it. Um, you were going to get that law degree. What in your mind? What was going to be this path for you? I don't know if Georgia State, you know, dean the college, you know, dean in the school of law was on it, but it might have been. But what, what we think back to that that person, Lavondere, back then. What what was going through your mind? Sure. So I went to I went to law school as a non-traditional student in the fact that I had been out of law school for four years mm -hmm. out of out of school for four years before going to law school. So I graduated from from undergrad at the University of Virginia. And then I um, had a career in banking that brought me here to Atlanta, actually, for a couple of years and also um, in the Washington, D.C. area. When I went to law school, I was thinking that I'd probably become um, a, a family lawyer or go into criminal law. But um, while I was in undergrad, I had had an experience uh, through a summer employment with the federal government at the Defense Communications Agency. Mm -hmm. And um, I was placed just kind of randomly, if you will, in the general counsel's office. And so um, when I had my first summer job after my first year of law school, I was placed in the um, in the uh, uh, communications practice at a large law firm in Washington, D.C., and thought perhaps, you know, I'd, 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 I'd pursue that. Then I still kind of was thinking about, you know, family law, criminal law. But then um, when I got out of law school, I had the opportunity to clerk um, for a federal judge on the Eastern District of Pennsylvania for the U.S. District Court and um, had, a, you know, had a taste of that experience and then also um, had some offers at law firms and, and pursued that. So when I came out of law school after, you know, kind of this, this uh, foray um, into uh, dabbling perhaps in criminal law and family law and then communications law, um, I had an offer to go to a firm in, in their communications practice. And that's kind of where I went. But I, you know, I've always, and, and, and kind of interestingly enough, um, is my, my, my transition into higher education too. I have been a lifelong um, lover of of the educational process mm -hmm. my my mother is a career teacher she taught mathematics for many many years even as we were traveling along around the world with my father's career and so actually it was the the transition into academia which i thought was really kind of going back to something that i really really loved even as a child you know, we had a, a segment on this program that looked at, you know, when you look at the, the percentages and statistics as you break it down in terms of, you know, the racial breakdown of, of those who in the law space. And it was still, there's still that gap. And there's always been a gap that existed. When we talk about the importance of recruiting, you know, people of color, um, for not only just for college, but also who might be interested in law school. Many folks have told me, you know what, Rose, we have to start not even in high school, but even maybe in a, at the middle and elementary school, at least introducing the concept of what it might mean to work in this space. Do you agree with that? How much truth is in that? 
Oh, I absolutely agree. I think the earlier, the better. Um, in addition to being the dean of the law school and a professor and a lawyer, I'm also a mom. I have a teenage daughter um, who is the apple of my eye and becoming a parent really um, drove home uh, to me something that my parents really did for me, which was to just expose me to a lot of different things early on. So we have here at the law school, for example, a summer program law camp for rising 10th, 11th and 12th graders. We bring them in and we introduce them to the, the to law school and mm -hmm. the, the profession. They get internships, they get um, exposure um, and networking opportunities with our alumni and members of the local bar. We're really excited about that type of thing. We would love to be able to expand it to to um, to middle school students. Um, like I said, the earlier the better to really start thinking about what the possibilities are, what your passions are. Try a lot of different things. We know that as we age, we do kind of have to choose something to be good at, something to pursue. But the the, the joy of being young is the freedom to try a lot of different things with really low low stakes, mm -hmm. low consequences. So to the extent that we can expose young young youngsters to a lot of different things early on. And the law is one of those things that clearly he, we at Georgia State University will hope that people will um, will consider and, and will pursue. And we really are grateful not only to our faculty here at the College of Law, mm -hmm. also our staff and our alumni and friends friends who help to make some of those things possible. And I know I sit here as a as a role model. Mm -hmm. um, by virtue of my sitting here in this seat really just is um, it, it allows youngsters to see what could be. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, what more can be even beyond this. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's an honor, it's a responsibility to be a dean of this law school in this space, in this place, at this moment. Um, but there's so much more that youngsters hopefully will aspire to as well. Um, each generation mm -hmm. should do more and better than the one before. The voice you hear is Dean LaVonda Reed, Georgia State University's new College of Law dean. And as we move from mentoring to leadership, I reached out to a friend of mine who was a, who was a professor, and I asked her, I said, tell me what's one important characteristic for law dean. She told me, quote, being an active listener, cultivating a culture of respect, and perhaps above all, addressing the needs of our student population, which include a large number of first-generation college law students. What do you make of that? No wiser words spoken. Um, what we do here at the law school and what we should be doing in all of higher education is putting our students at the center of everything. Um, one of my predecessors and also a former mentor um, gives us these little road signs that we put on our desk and it, it poses a rhetorical question of and this is good for students because so the reason we are here is to educate our students to create knowledge to disseminate knowledge through our scholarly work and research um, but yes um, so for Georgia State for example um, our student population is um, in large part, um, first generation, whether it be first generation college or first generation coming into a profession like the legal profession. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a first generation college um, educated 
person in my in my family. However, I'm the first lawyer in my family. Mm-hmm. And I realized, you know, with those transitions, how much a difference it makes to kind of understand the processes that you're engaging in, understand the lingo, understand the cadence of the profession and things like that. So I know that our, our faculty and staff here at the College of Law work really closely with our students to prepare them for what they will get out in the world and to make sure that they are they're ready. And as the dean, do you set goals for the college of law? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I set goals. So I've got goals for myself. And as I um, come into the, the College of Law, we'll have discussions with faculty and staff about our, what our goals are, what our vision is, who we want to be, where we want to go. So for example, you know, in the first, my first 100 days, I'm doing the standard going around meeting people, meeting my staff, meeting the faculty. Um, I had the, 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 the luxury of doing so in the transition between my former position at Syracuse University mm-hmm. and coming here and working with the interim dean and the staff that that's here. Um, but, um, you know, we will, we will start to develop where, where we're going in collaboration with one another, which is so important for an educational institution. Why was Georgia State so attractive for you? They've, they've got you now. So, so you can... <laughs> <laughs> they got me now. That's right. And I'm so happy to be here. So I could give a flip answer that I was looking to get out of uh, out of the snowy um, central New York region. However, that, that's okay. I hope <laughs> I hold fondly on my relationships with my former colleagues in Syracuse and continue to work with people on a variety of different initiatives. Um, but yes, the weather, in fact, is much better here um, in, in Atlanta, but for maybe the humidity. But I would say that um, this is a this is an exciting university. Um, the mission, the vision the leadership of the university, the programming that we have at the College of Law, the clinical programming, the experiential learning opportunities for our students, the fact that we are centered right here in the center of downtown Atlanta with the state capital only blocks away. We're on the corridor, along the corridor of Auburn Avenue where so much happened during the civil rights movement. Atlanta's a, a, a city that's exciting for people regardless of your age, young and all this culture, there is history, and there there's opportunity. And so I, you know, I, I lived in Atlanta about um, uh, almost uh, 25 years ago at this point, and it has changed so much since then. Yes, it's it has. Really, a world class international city. You but know? you, but you heard a little bit of the conversation before we were talking about the eviction process. And as much as we know Atlanta has has blossomed, there are still some concerns because everyone's quality of life is not the same. What role can Georgia State law play in the Atlanta community? And even when we talk about something, whether it's housing or, or the the eviction crisis or, or homelessness or, or what have you, or a workforce development, health care, how do you see the Georgia State Law College being a part of that? Yeah, well, we are we are we're really in it. So our students do a lot of experiential learning that's public service oriented pro bono work. They primarily our students are going into um, areas that are not necessarily the most lucrative mm-hmm. of, of careers. They are public servants in large part. They are serving the communities that you are 
talking about. Now, Georgia State is very diverse mm -hmm. in the offerings as well as what our alumni do, but we do have a strong presence in the area. We've got clinics such as the Access to Justice Clinic that works very much in these spaces that you were speaking of earlier, mm -hmm. our health law, health law program, and many other programs of that nature. Many times people are coming to us wanting to solve some of the problems that they see around them in their communities. That's what drives them to law school. That's what powers them once they're out of law school. One of the things we're most proud of is keeping our um, education affordable so that people are able to pursue these types of careers and do the type of work that you and your former guests were speaking on. Dean, Dean LaVondere, Georgia State University's new College of Law Dean. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you just got here. You were just appointed and you took time to come on Closer Look. So we really appreciate it. And we'll definitely have you back. Thank you, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other program. So just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. If you missed any of the program, you know where to go. It's online, wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, weeknights at 7 p.m. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.